And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Few have been trained in leadership at an elite military academy like West Point, and then applied and evolved their leadership skills throughout their careers across the grand slam of organization structures, military, government, NGO, and private sector. Like today's guest mentor, the Honorable Robert A. McDonald, a.k.a. Bob. Bob was nominated by President Obama to serve as the 8th Secretary of Veterans Affairs, where he led the VA and its roughly 400,000 employees on an ambitious transformational journey to be a world-class service provider and the number one customer service agency in the federal government to give veterans consistent, high-quality experiences. Before joining the VA, Bob was chairman, president, and chief executive officer of one of the world's largest companies, Procter & Gamble. During his tenure, PNG was widely recognized for its leader development prowess and chief executive magazine named PNG the best company for developing leader talent. Bob graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and he earned his MBA from the University of Utah. An Army veteran, Bob served with the 82nd Airborne Division. He completed jungle, Arctic, and desert warfare training, and he earned the Ranger Tab, Expert Infantryman Badge, and Senior Parachutist Wings. He received the Meritorious Service Medal upon leaving military service, and Bob currently serves as Chairman of the Board of the West Point Association of Graduates. Welcome, Bob. With all that training, I would hate to run into you in a dark alley. Um, so uh, Thanks, Dan. It's great to be with you again, Dan. Well, it's, it's, it's great to see you, Bob. Um, so you grew up in Gary, Indiana, and I've driven by Gary a few times on Interstate 80, and it doesn't look like the song that Robert Preston was singing about in the, in the Music Man. So growing up in Gary, and you didn't come from a military family, what got you interested in West Point and the military? Well, you're right, Dan. I was born in, in Gary, Indiana, and uh, we were bo- we were born in a house right across from the uh, U.S. Steel Mill and the Calumet River. Um, my dad served in the Army Air Force uh, after World War II and was part of the occupation forces for um, for Japan. And during the time uh, growing up, I, I loved to uh, to play with and look at some of the manuals he had brought home from Japan, some of the things he had brought home. And I guess that's what got me initially interested. But I can't remember a time where I wasn't interested in going to the military academy. And as you know, I first applied uh, to my congressman when I was in sixth grade, 11 years old. Wow. Well, um, by the way, my dad went to West Point and, you know, he grew up on a farm in, in Nebraska. And I remember him telling me, what a shock it was arriving as a plebe where he had to learn, you know, a way to hold his knife and fork and eating with square corners and folding his laundry a certain way or his clothes. 
in his underwear a certain way. Um, how did you find that kind of rigor and discipline? Was it comfortable, uncomfortable? Did you find it useful? Well, you know, since I always wanted to go to West Point, uh, I just saw it as part of the process. But I think what your dad described is actually um, uh, very um, interesting because it basically suggests that before you can learn to lead, you need to learn to follow. And uh, that was that, that was kind of a... Um, uh, a revelation to many of us because all of us had been in leadership positions, whether it was uh, captain of a sports team or Boy Scouts or church groups. Uh, all of us had been in leadership positions before, but none of us had probably reflected enough on uh, what it means to follow. Sometimes we'd call West Point the graveyard of high school heroes. Uh, because everybody was a hero in high school, and then they get they get thrown together. They were the big fish in the small pond, becoming the small fish in the big pond. Uh, well, you know, I um, you know, in describing your experience at West Point, you know, I I didn't go to uh, a military academy, but I remember at AT and T, sometimes our annual evaluations would be what we called three three sixty evaluations, where you get the evaluation from your boss. But you'd also get performance feedback anonymized from your team and from your peers. And um, what we found at AT&T was the peer evaluation was by far the most meaningful in terms of determining who were the most skilled leaders. And I think you described, you know, West Point as the ability to practice leadership in a peer environment. You know, what... What leadership lessons did you learn, let's say, at West Point that those of us that went uh, to civilian universities uh, didn't learn? Well, at West Point, we our mission is to uh, develop leaders of character, and we, we, we describe it that way, leaders of character, because character is oftentimes the differentiating element of someone's leadership. But we have 47 months to develop leaders of character. Obviously, we try to bring in the very best high school students, uh, those who have shown leadership. Um, and then we put them through a process that gives them lots of opportunity. We study the theories of leadership, but then we also give them lots of opportunity to experience leadership, whether it's um, leadership of a squad that they may uh, lead while they're a cadet, or whether it's a um, an international assignment, I had a tank platoon in Germany, uh, part of my uh, junior summer uh, before senior year, um, and and through that we constantly are looking for uh, them to be reflective and to refine their leadership uh, over time. Um, obviously, uh, the cadet honor code. Uh, I won't lie, cheat, steal, tolerate anyone who does is an important part of that demonstration of character, as is a collection of words in the West Point Cadet Prayer, uh, which is stuck with me, and I've told many audiences, it's helped me to choose the harder right rather than the easier wrong. And as you know, as a successful business leader, um, the hard thing to do is 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 usually the right thing to do. Yeah, so um, you did very well at West Point. You know, in graduating, you know, cadets get to choose their branch of service based upon class rank. And, you know, you mentioned that the top graduates like yourself usually choose the Corps of Engineers, which is what my father chose. You chose the infantry and the 82nd Airborne in particular. Why? 
Well, you're right. I studied engineering and I, I received my, well, it's now called the fundamentals of engineering. I passed that exam in those days it was called engineering training, but I figured if you're, you know, if you're going to go to West Point, uh, the infantry, and if you're going to be in the army, the infantry is the place to be. And not only the infantry, but you have to go to ranger school to try to get the ranger tab, as you described, uh, parachute school, learn how to parachute, jungle warfare, Arctic warfare, desert warfare, make you as valuable as you can be to the forces that you serve with. You know, as a, as a uh, we call them butter bars, as a second lieutenant with a little gold bar on your shoulder yeah. coming to your unit, and in my case, coming into the first of the 504th Airborne Infantry, many of the soldiers had been to Vietnam. Many, all the soldiers were airborne qualified. Many of them were jump masters, senior parachutists, master parachutists. I had to earn my way, and I needed every help I could get, every accreditation accreditation I could get, and uh, uh, that's that's uh, why I did the things I did, and that's why I chose infantry. I wanted to be in the army. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, former VA secretary and PNG CEO, Bob McDonald. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse and you're listening to The Mentors Radio. And now back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with former Procter & Gamble CEO, Bob McDonald. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, iHeart, and more. On any device at any time, subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So you had some challenging situations right at the beginning of your career uh, in the Army. I think you had to fire your first platoon sergeant. You know, what did you learn about leadership uh, as a young ar Army officer? Well, you're right. I I had to fire my first platoon sergeant. We we our my unit was chosen to do an experimental jump with a new reserve parachute, and um, uh, we I asked for volunteers, and of course everybody in the unit volunteered. You wouldn't you wouldn't not volunteer in that kind of a situation. We, we jumped, and my platoon sergeant said he had told me he had jumped, but uh, but hadn't. He had he had landed with the aircraft. And obviously, we had ways to check that, and we couldn't we couldn't tolerate um, a leader uh, in an organization where life and death uh, can come at any time, based on decisions the leaders make. So I went to my company commander, and I said, you know, I think I, I have to I have to relieve the platoon sergeant, and he agreed with me, and I did that, and I I, I wrestled with it for a long time, Dan, but I think the the most important thing that kept resonating in my mind was that part of the West Point Cadet Prayer, choose the harder right rather than the easier wrong. And, and the harder right was, was obviously taking a step. Um, if he hadn't lied to me, if he'd come clean the first time or maybe the second time, that would have been okay or we would, could have at least worked through it. But uh, he continually lied to me. And of course, I had proof that, that he had landed with the airplane. Yeah, I think, you know, that that translates to the private sector as well. I've found that the truth is everything. Um, so you decided to leave the army after, I think it was five years and you chose Procter and Gamble. Why PNG? Well, I chose PNG for the reason I, I chose the army and that was, uh, um, uh, a sense of purpose. The purpose being to improve the lives of others. That's always kind of been the thread of continuity in my life. Um, 
being a Boy Scout, uh, working in church groups, uh, is I really get a kick out of being able to help other people. And uh, that was that was the reason I, I chose P&G. The purpose of Procter & Gamble is to improve the lives of the world's consumers. And um, that really resonated with me. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with Bob McDonald discussing leadership. So, you know, P&G has a certain way of doing things. Uh, so does the Army. You know, we use the word culture to describe that. Did you have to adapt your managerial and leadership style moving from the army to private sector? You know, I think you're right, Dan, in pointing out that culture is one of the most important, if not the most important element of a high performance organization. And certainly I had to adapt, but I also found the cultures both at Procter & Gamble and in the military uh, very consistent with my own. A strong sense of purpose, uh, a strong set of values, uh, as we talked, character and and uh, integrity, and um, and those were brought to life every day by the people I got to work with, and that was a real joy. So PNG was kind of the mecca of marketing. I remember being in business school, and the marketing guys wanted jobs at PNG. You started your career relatively late because of your army service, yet you still ascended to become CEO, what do you attribute that to? Well, in those days, everybody started at the bottom. So I didn't I didn't feel um, uh, any uh, disadvantage to anyone else. Uh, if I had to look back and say, what, what, what do I attribute um, the levels I achieved at P&G to? I, I would say one, uh, leadership, um, being a student of leadership, uh, being introspective about leadership. And number two, I would say, um, the, the people around me. Um, at West Point, we say, uh, if you want to graduate, cooperate, cooperate and graduate. And oftentimes when there was an assignment that I was doing that was um, was was okay to share from an honor standpoint, uh, I'd, I'd put my solution on my door and I'd say, anybody who wants help, knock on the door, come on in, let's talk about it. Uh, cooperate and graduate. You, nobody achieves success by themselves. And uh, whether it's our families, our wives, uh, husbands, um, we work together. By the way, on that uh, subject of not, you know, not being able to achieve something by yourself or, or working with others to, to, to get ahead, this being the mentors radio, did you have any mentors that played a key role for you? I had a lot of mentors and, and I, I wouldn't say I had just one, um, but I had a lot of mentors and I, and I would emphasize I had positive mentors and I had negative mentors. What do I mean by that is I'm a student of leadership. So I'm constantly viewing the leadership of others. And I wanted to look at now what, what are the successful elements of this person's leadership? What are the unsuccessful elements of another person's leadership? Things that I don't want to repeat. Um, mm -hmm. And for example, um, I knew someone who was a, a pretty successful leader uh, at P&G, but they were what I would call an against leader. They had to create a burning platform. Um, and then when they got to higher levels of responsibility, they could they had nothing to be against anymore. So that against leadership style doesn't work. So, uh, you know, we don't discuss politics on this show, but I, if I recall when you retired from P&G, you were a registered Republican, yet you get a call from a Democratic president of the United States, President Obama, 
to see if you would be interested in becoming Secretary of Veterans Affairs, an organization that was in a bit of turmoil. Was that a tough decision for you? No, it was not a tough decision because, of course, with with a, a personal purpose of improving the lives of others, um, it really was a revelation to me because this showed in, in some ways in my faith and God that I, I'd been prepared to be a, an Army officer, work at Procter & Gamble, arguably one of the largest uh, companies in the world to delight people with their products. And then I had an opportunity to use that training uh, help the 19 million veterans in the country. So, um, but I thought it was, I thought it was an enlightened choice by the president. He realized he needed somebody who'd run a large complex business uh, and was also a veteran. And I'm assuming, I, I believe that Venn diagram uh, intersection is relatively small. Now, can you describe what the situa situation was like, what the problems were at the VA when you arrived? Well, the problem at the VA when I arrived was that um, we had committed to um, to serve our veterans at a level that was well beyond any capability we had. Basically, the commitment of the secretary at the time was from the moment the veteran calls for an appointment, they would get that appointment 14 days later. Um, we just were not capable of delivering on that. And as a result, we had employees um, cooking the books by calling the veteran back when an appointment was ready two weeks from then. So we had to build a lot of capability. We we added more clinics, we added more doctors, we added more nurses, we expanded clinic hours, we raised the pay of our medical providers, um, and all that was necessary with the help of Congress and the White House in order to provide the care the veterans deserved. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Bob McDonald, discussing how military leadership lessons can be applied to business. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with former PNG CEO Bob McDonald about career choices. So the VA was a pretty formal place, Bob, kind of like the military. And you started the Call Me Bob campaign. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a great, great question, Dan. Uh, when I joined P&G, I was surprised. Uh, I was coming out of the military. I called everybody sir and ma'am. And I was surprised to learn that P&G, no matter what level you were, everybody was called by their first name. And it dawned on me that that, that reflected the intimate relationship that employees wanted to have with each other and that management wanted to have with all employees. And that intimacy led to trust, one of the P&G values. And trust meant bad news traveled just as quickly as good news up the chain of command. At VA, we had a real problem. We, we were so formalistic, so militaristic in a sense in our chain of command that the bad news, the veterans not getting care in Phoenix, wasn't traveling up the chain of command. So the secretary had no hope of doing anything about it. So I tried to reduce the formality, uh, create intimacy, create trust, um, and then uh, create a, a network of, of folks in the organization where bad news would come to me quickly. And uh, it seemed to work pretty well, but it got known to be as the Call Me Bob uh, campaign. Well, that's one element. I know it's hard to do briefly. And by the way, for our listeners, um, 
there's a Harvard Business School review case, you know, Harvard Business case on the job that Bob did and his team did in, in turning around the VA. But but Bob, what what were really the keys to the turnaround you led at at the VA? Well, the, the number one thing we were looking for was to rebuild trust. We had we had damaged trust uh, by by all of these media reports that we had people lying and and that veterans were getting their care. And the way we rebuilt trust was um, I I went on the road um, and I traveled. I averaged probably one trip a day. So some days I was doing multiple trips where I would get out there and, and put my face and my heart in front of everyone. One basically, I was looking for ideas to improve our uh, operation, um, and uh, one of the ways to do that was to get out and meet people. It's easy to criticize a large bureaucracy without a face. It's hard to criticize, harder to criticize the individual you know, like Bob, who has a uh, who is a veteran and has a big heart for uh, for veteran care. I then had to work with Congress to um, and and our team to get more money, to get more money for more space, more doctors, more nurses. We expanded clinic hours. Our goal by the end of 2016, when we left office, was that any veteran could get same-day care simply by going to their uh, medical facility. We were able to achieve that, uh, but that's quite um, uh, an outcome compared to where we were with the uh, veterans waiting for care in the beginning. And then the third thing we tried to do is we tried to change our culture. We changed our culture from a rules-based culture, which much of government is, to a principle-based culture, which is really the kind of culture that service-oriented companies have to have. By the way, can you just elaborate a little bit on a principles-based culture? Because you talked about culture really being like the, the linchpin of performance for any for any team. Absolutely. I think if your listeners were to take anything away from this discussion, it would be this point that service-oriented companies have cultures uh, that are principle-based, meaning you want employees to take initiative to delight their consumer, to delight their customer. And that means they have to make decisions and take risk and perform um, thing tasks that may never have been done before. And, and the, the ball is always moving for uh, how you delight a consumer because uh, years ago, I used to think that uh, for my family, uh, electronic windows on an automobile were uh, a sign of luxury. Um, now every automobile just about has roll-up windows. So you have to find a new way to delight that customer. We had a, a, a nurse in Wright River Junction, Vermont, whose veteran didn't show up for a mental health appointment. And, and uh, she knew that was unusual for him because she knew him so well. And uh, she, long story short, she got the police. We broke down the door of his house and we found him near death, wedged under a piece of furniture that had fallen on him. She took initiative. Now, the question isn't whether she took initiative. That turned out great. But what would happen if we opened the door and he was just sitting there drinking a Coke would she be punished for that? No, she should still be celebrated for taking that initiative. And that's what great customer service companies do. They delight you. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with former PNG CEO and VA Secretary Bob McDonald. So um, after you leave the VA, you know, you've had a long and distinguished career in the military, running a big company. 
you know, running a big government organization, um, you're enjoying life in retirement and you come out of retirement to take on an NGO or, or non-government organization the, you know, to become chair of the West Point Association of Graduates. Why? Well, West Point changed the trajectory of my life. Um, being a, a, a young boy born across from the U.S. Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana, uh, having a great childhood, but it changed the trajectory of my life. It allowed me to do things I didn't think I could do, and it helped me realize potential that I didn't know I had. And what I wanted to do was to give back to West Point. My wife and I have, um, it's our number one charitable um, donations uh, are to West Point. And I wanted to also give back in a way that I could provide whatever leadership experience I had. In today's United States, as you know, we're, we're politically divided, and I want to protect West Point and our military from those political divides and keep our military and keep West Point apolitical like it should be. Um, you know, the Constitution provides for a military that is run by civilians, and the military is, uh, is apolitical, and that's the way we need to keep it. You know, you learned leadership in the military, you know, in the private sector, you know, in the government, at an NGO, what leadership principles are universal and which ones do you think might be unique or special for any of these four different areas? Yeah, as you kind of suggest, I think the principles themselves are relatively universal but how you execute them uh, may be different. Um, the importance of purpose is always there. The importance of values is always there, but you have to rely more on the purpose in a government leadership role because you don't have the financial tools to motivate people. There are no stock options for the federal government. Um, in the private sector, in contrast, Purpose is important, no question about that, but you have many more financial tools. For example, at the Procter & Gamble company, uh, every employee owns shares of stock. And so one of our values at the company is ownership. We want everybody to act like an owner. Well, in the government, you're not gonna, you, yes, ownership behavior is, is outstanding, but it's hard to achieve ownership of the government. On the other hand, you're there for public service. And so we we, we rely a lot on that. Um, so principles the same, how you do it's a little bit different. So we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Bob McDonald, discussing universal leadership principles. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Bob McDonald about serving our veterans. So, uh, Bob, how do you define the word success? Oh, gosh, that's a that's a that's a really tough question, Dan, but I think um, in my life with a, a purpose of improving the lives of others, success is how many how many lives can you improve? Um, I go to bed at night uh, saying my prayers and I pray that I had an impact, a positive impact on at least one individual that day. Um, so I measure both in terms of impact, but also in just sheer numbers. Am I available to help, help people? It's, 
It's frankly the reason I gave out my cell phone number to all veterans in my first national press conference in October of 2014. I wanted them to know that they could always contact me as kind of a, the person of last resort uh, to get the care that they deserved. Hmm. So, uh, so how do you define happiness? Well, I get my happiness when I make a difference uh, for people. Um, and my happiness comes from uh, that. Now, obviously, uh, that starts with uh, my family, uh, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, but also my friends. And um, I'm constantly looking to try to make a difference um, in their lives. It, it reminds me of the story of the, um, I think it was um, Lauren Isley who came up with the story of the starfish, the old man picking starfish up off the beach. They were stranded, throwing them back in the water. And the young person said to them, why you do that, old man? You can't possibly make a difference. Look at all the starfish on the beach. And he said, yeah, you know, but it matters to this one. And um, I'm always anxious every day that I'm missing that one, you know, that there's there's one out there that I've not been able to reach. You know, it's interesting. You know, I've talked to a lot of people about this subject. It's, by the way, Bob, it's a question I ask everybody, I ask them about success yes. and happiness, because it's surprising to me how many people that we would all consider extremely successful who are very unhappy. I mean, there's many of them, as, as we know, commit suicide or, you know, or have other, you know, psychological issues. You know, I, I tend to think of success in terms of trophies, honors, recognition, stock price, or what have you, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, mean happiness. There's often a, a human element in happiness. Maybe it's biological or something where you either have to feel like you're improving the lives of others or you have special relationships. Happiness tends to be, I think, longer lasting where, yes. you know, success is fleeting for a lot of people. And by the way, a lot of driven people, success is almost a, um, a condition precedent, a prerequisite of being happy. If they're not being successful, they're not happy, but it's not sufficient. You know, it's kind of necessary and not sufficient, but it's a, it's a really interesting Ohio, subject. The Ohio State football coach uh, once said, um, uh, grateful people are happy people, or happy people are grateful people. And so count me as, as, uh, as grateful. I used to warn business school uh, students, uh, you know, don't, don't want to be a CEO. That's, that's uh, selling yourself short. Have a purpose that's bigger than that, and CEO will come along. But, but I think it's wrong to to have ambition for a title or for an amount of money. I think your ambition should be for something bigger than that. By the way, following up on that, Bob, what advice would you have for, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who are working at companies who would love to be CEO someday. Uh, what advice would you have for them? Well, my, my biggest learning has been uh, don't ever stop learning. Um, the older you get, the harder it is to learn new things. Technology changes. Um, young people will make fun of their parents for not knowing the latest technology. But someday that new technology will, will cause that young person who becomes older uh, also to be less capable. So we, we have to be adaptable. You know, Darwin didn't say survival of the fittest. He said survival of the most adaptable. We have to find ways to adapt and to learn new things. And that gets harder and harder. Some of the advice I give folks is to really focus just on the job you're doing today and be really, really good at it. 
what I've noticed is some people, and this gets back to your earlier comment, is they're so focused on the next level or the next rung. It's almost like a sports analogy. If you're looking forward to the next big game that it might be a really big one, you end up losing today. And yeah. it will take care of itself if you just, you know, don't don't think about that. And also your peers will notice if you're more interested in the next thing, you're always jockeying for exposure and position and you're not spending enough time and your people on just doing a great job today and in, in, in what you have. And so I think the here and totally now. Agree with you, totally agree with you. Um, so uh, by the way, this is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio and we are with former VA Secretary Bob McDonald. You talked about kind of the importance of relationships as we've been discussing this subject and others, especially in creating high performance organizations and teams. You know, with COVID, we have a lot more remote work which I think will make that perhaps challenging. What's your view on kind of the future of remote work and, and the challenges of building these truly high-performing organizations when people don't see each other as much? Well, I think your, your question implies the answer, which is we as leaders have to look for systemic, strategic, and structural ways to bring people together because relationships uh, are are based on intimacy. Intimacy only occurs with proximity. I don't I don't think you can have an intimate relationship, at least I, I hope not, um, over over Zoom. Uh, and so the leader has to think deliberately about how do I bring people together? How do I help them learn about each other? How do I create those relationships? Uh, believe me, if you're in a military unit and you're going into combat, you want to know who's on your left and on your right. You want to know what makes them tick. And you want to hope that they're there to save your life, just like you're there to save their life. Hmm. By the way, if you were a CEO today, because CEOs are taking different positions on this, would you kind of force people back to the office or would you let them work from home? Now, obviously, it depends upon the job and what have you, but we're where do you come out on that? Well, I look for a structural way to bring people together. I mean, even even when uh, I was CEO, when I was secretary, uh, my wife and I would often host events at our house uh, or at places outside the office where we brought people together. And we didn't just bring them together for fun. Uh, I mean, that was part of it. But we also had uh, ways, they may have been uh, blind to the people looking at them, but we had ways of of causing them to interact with different people and, and getting to know those people because that 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 intimacy is um, is so important to the success of the organization, but it's also important to that feeling of happiness that we discussed earlier. So looking back on your illustrious and kind of diverse career, Bob, what are you the most proud of? Well, first thing I'd say is I'm I'm not illustrious and my career wasn't illustrious and I'm I'm continue to be a work in progress. So I don't know what the next chapter is. Uh I'm preparing for it. I'm trying to learn new things, but um I'm not I'm not done yet. Um in terms of the of pride, I hate to I hate to say I'm pride prideful about anything, but I think the thing I'm happiest about is I've been able to contribute and the people who have um, given me their trust and and we've gone on the journey together have uh, been rewarded for that. 
And um, I think that's that's important. To me, the most important thing in life is relationships, relationship with your God, relationship with your family, relationship with your friends. And um, uh, success is, are those relationships. Well, your humility is one of the things that uh, I've always liked so much about you, Bob. Um, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, military, business, NGO, and government leader, Bob McDonald, discussing values-based leadership. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a positive review and tell a friend about the show. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with former PNG CEO and VA Secretary Bob McDonald discussing success. Bob, you've worked in a bipartisan environment in Washington, but that was years ago. Are those days over or, or is there hope that elected officials can put country before party? Well, I, I'm an optimist, Dan, and I, and I think there's hope. And, and one of the reasons I think that the veterans issues are pretty much bipartisan is everybody feels beholden to veterans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that, you know, there is, there is hope that we can, that great leadership can unite us and, and raise the level of the, of the discussion to really important policy issues. There's so many important policy issues in front of us. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can get back to that, get out of the personality politics and back to the policy politics. Looking back on your career, Bob, uh, and by the way, I'm an optimist too. I keep my fingers crossed on, on that one. Um, what's the best advice that you've ever received? Well, I think the best advice is, uh, to realize the importance of character and integrity and realize that you own it and uh, only you can give it up. Um, and, you know, one of the things I used to say at Procter and Gamble and, uh, at the VA is I wanted people in my organization who were willing to give up the job if they needed to, in order to maintain their character and integrity. That's the kind of team we had in place uh, at the VA, at PNG, and uh, that makes the culture so much stronger uh, because no one can question your motives. As somebody who doesn't know how to retire, <laughs> what do you do for fun? Well, I exercise every day, and that's that's an important part of my um of my regimen is, is exercising. And, and part of that includes playing golf. I love getting outside that, that may be the infantryman in me. Uh, cause I spend a lot of time in the woods looking for golf balls. <laughs> I exercise too, but I don't consider that fun. So that, that makes us different. Like you, I'm always been really interested in customers and the consumer as kind of the, the center of, of any organization, particularly in the private sector. You really brought a customer mindset to the VA. How were you able to do that culturally? Well, we we talked a lot about how do we move from a rules-based culture to a principle-based culture. We created a vision of being the top-rated customer-centric organization in the federal government. 
And then we we trained everyone in something called human-centered design, where we journey mapped uh, the the journey from the day you raise your hand, you're sworn in, to the day we bury you in a VA cemetery. We looked at all of the touch points between the individual and the VA. We rated those, and then we tried to redesign the processes or redesign the touch point to elevate the scores. So. When we started, um, our trust amongst veterans was around 47%. Today, I think the trust of veterans of the VA is over 90%. So it's it's easy, to, it's not easy to do, It's it can be done. Uh, it requires a lot of work um, and it requires everybody uh, pitching in, every employee. Well, thanks for joining us today, Bob. Your career is a model of purpose really driving you know, an incredible career journey and you know, actually developing a broad set of leadership skills and competencies based upon diverse experiences. And you know, what I'm also finding is the private sector, you know, at boards in particular, that's what I'm doing now is serving on boards. And we're getting a lot more involved with management on topics like purpose, values, principles, and culture than we were in years past, and really almost themes from the military that we're finding in the private sector and in companies that is crucial to organizational success. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.